0: Welcome to Tech Kitchen Talks, episode 26. In this episode, Dave from Silicon Valley and myself, Glenn from London, discuss developer productivity and the space framework. Is Reddit's approach reasonable? And other items that have caught our attention this week. If you would like to join our exclusive free community for technology leaders, please sign up at techkitchen.io, where you can join our Slack group and keep the conversation going. Hi again, Dave. Hey, Glenn, great to see you. Great to see you too. So this week, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about developer productivity. I recently came across a framework I'd never heard of before called SPACE. It's an acronym. And I really like the approach. But before I actually start digging into what it is, how do you actually measure uh, developer productivity, Dave?
1: It's extremely difficult. This problem has been going on, I think, for 40 years. We cannot find good metrics to do it. And everyone is just continuing to flop around and create new acronyms and things like that. The way that it was done way back in the day, in the 90s, was that your manager would pay attention to your work. They'd look at your code from time to time. They would talk to you. They were close enough to hear feedback from the QA department and and whoever was close to you, and they could just sort of feel your productivity. That's how I did it when I had developers working for me, and that worked pretty well, and there were always some goofy metrics like lines of code written Right, And all these things for years and years. How many check-ins? Remember that one? How many check-ins did you do? And it never seems to end. So in terms of this, uh, the space framework, I did hear about this. Someone sent it to me a little while ago. And in one way, it is a step forward because it does reflect some of these lessons learned over the years. It doesn't simply look for metrics that can be automated or easily counted, put into a dashboard and say yes or no. This is a very highly productive person. At the same time, it does fall into the same trap and tries to find some of those silver bullet metrics. So, I don't know. I like the direction it's going, but I would say it still falls short. Don't you think that when you when you have an engineer working for you, and you really feel like they have good productivity, it's because you're fairly close to what what they're doing. You've communicated with them a lot. You understand what kind of feature flow or fixes or whatever are moving through that developer and getting the velocity and you know that it's been successful and then you know that they have good productivity. Isn't it just a human decision still in the
0: end? Okay, so let me start about, I, I get asked ask this question a lot from especially like clients. How do you measure Uh, developer productivity? How do I know what I'm getting, what I'm paying for? And it is an incredibly hard question to answer. I've actually worked in a business where they acquired another business. That CEO came into the company as like, you know, another level inside the business. And he did actually measure lines of code. And obviously his reputation amongst the engineers was just immediately shot. And no one was taking him seriously from that point onwards, because (laughs) as we all know, if you're a good code writer, actually, it's potentially possible that the number of lines you write or code you write is actually c- becoming negative because right. you're taking out code and actually improving it.
1: Not to mention how, how easy it is to game the system
0: with exactly. comments you know, and every- things like that. Every if statement, you know, the curly brace goes right below the (laughs) if statement and you've got another line, you know? (laughs) Exactly. So it's always a very difficult measurement to make and trying to automate it against like a GitHub repository never felt like an appropriate way to do this this for anyway, One like sort of cheating answer is to say, well, you know, you can try and measure story points, you know, if you're measuring story points, that's how, how many story points your team can deliver inside a period. Obviously, we're not trying to deal at an individual level because they're... There's multiple issues there. The leads are normally supporting roles, so therefore they get less done from a development perspective. But they enable us for the rest of the business, and you know maybe someone's been replaced out, so therefore the story points of the team is going to be reduced. But again, it never really felt satisfying. It never really felt like a true way to understand is that an appropriate way. And the space framework, which like I mentioned, only came across recently, I, I felt actually tried to cover all the different nuances of software development and how productivity can be hindered from each of these categories. So just by saying what is purely the output of the team, is that really productivity? If I ask the team to work over the weekend, next week their output's going to be reduced because they're going to be burnt out, you know, tired, not fresh. You know, as you and me know, when when we used to code, I used to do an awful lot of, I used to do 80-hour weeks at one point. And, you know, essentially that was just because powering through. But there's a point where your output actually starts reducing, even though you're adding more hours purely because your mental capacity is just not there and you need the sleep. Or you the quality the plummets, you know. Exactly. You know, you're taking too many hacking shortcuts or you wake up the next day, look at what you did, and it's rubbish, you know, especially in the days when you used to do like uh, hacking solutions together with a pint of beer. You come back to the, <laughs> the following day and say, do you know what, I'm just going to delete all that and start again. <laughs> so going through the space framework because it's an acronym you've got satisfaction and well-being and this you know this is the poor point which you just don't take into consideration of right normally as a quick answer you don't think about burnout you don't think about employee satisfaction so i think that's a great measure of one piece you've got the performance piece which is more around you know reliability absence of bugs even customer satisfaction when you start looking at the impact side of things Activity now comes more towards the metrics that we discussed discussing before around coding, volume, which obviously isn't nice, um, whether you actually have continuous integration deployment, Communication and collaboration is obviously a big one. If it's difficult to find documentation, especially if it's a large platform, you know, are people reviewing work to make sure quality stays there, is onboarding time fast. And then efficiency and flow is the last one of the number of times you have to hand off in the process. Ability to have flow time obviously is another one. If I'm constantly, if we feel pressured, we're constantly bugging the developer going, right, is this done yet? Is this done yet? How long is it going to take you? And it takes them out of their flow. And that's what I found most interesting about this. It takes into account five different characteristics of team development that should be considered. And just trying to put this into any form of single metric is just not going to be successful because there's all these other aspects of development that is going to have an impact and help determine whether in future your engineering team is going to continue performing at a certain level, or whether there's a likelihood of um, degradation or improvement? Well, yeah, I certainly agree that satisfaction and well-being is
1: really important. I'm not sure the metric we put on that, but that is very important. Engineers that are bored or unhappy, they're worried about getting laid off, they don't like their manager, or whatever, they are going to be less productive. They're more likely to take shortcuts and things like that. The happy developer is a better developer. So that's the kind of thing that I think is starting to emerge. And instead of just looking at metrics, we're looking at these other things, satisfaction and well-being. Uh, Same with communication and collaboration. That one is almost even more critical because if you're an engineer and we can measure your touch points to the product owner, to the project manager, to the to the other developers, the BA or the stakeholders, whatever. But I think the purpose there is that the more communication and collaboration you have with your general team and stakeholders, the easier it's going to be to measure your performance down the road. Because now you have more people that know what you're doing, what you're supposed to be doing, what they expect it to look like and when they expect it to be done and what quality it should be in various ways. So now if you're looking at the productivity of an employee, there's a lot of people you can talk to. We can have a team meeting and talk about how the whole team is delivering velocity. You can have a meeting with their direct report or their QA manager or the product owner. Everyone has a different perspective. So that communication, I think is really what builds the foundation for judging productivity. The other ones, performance, activity, and even efficiency and flow are kind of feeling like old school metrics. I think now it's like, All right, here we go back to the old thing. I need something to measure. Lead time for changes is the one I saw as an example for the flow. How many days from when a change is requested to when it's released? That does not seem a particularly meaningful thing. If it's a banking project that needs a lot of QAs, a lot of numbers, there's regulation, things like that, it could be weeks. If it's a tiny startup, it could be two days. What's the difference? So I think it's communication and satisfaction are the things that are new here. And I wonder if somebody uh, really wanted that acronym. They wanted it to be space, so they added the performance, activity, efficiency, and flow. It could just be satisfaction, communication, and then all the measurable stuff that we can think of in one bucket. I guess that would be SCA. But anyways, I I just wonder if they came up with the, uh, the acronym first here. But we're still not there, right? We don't really have a simple framework to measure developer performance that is numeric. And that seems to be what everybody wants. Have you heard of the DORA framework? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Development frequency, lead time for changes, the change failure rate, which is how often production goes down due to a deployment and time to restore when it does go down. I think that's what the DORA is, right? Is that correct?
0: yeah it's more like system rather than yeah it, it's like performance of the engineering department as a whole rather yeah. than at a team level because it's trying to tackle you know your uptime support and actual support from that s- standpoint lots of organizations do utilize DORA metrics as a way to provide information to the board of how well the organization is doing mm. from a technical standpoint because that's always a difficult conversation to explain from that perspective too I've never done it, but
1: I do like the idea of looking at the um, engineering team as a whole, as a machine, and saying, you know, how is it running? Lead time for changes. In this case, when we have a looking at the whole group, it can be more interesting because we can improve on it or see how it compares to the year before, how often the system goes down. So I do feel like there's some more creative thinking. We've come a long way since lines of code. But uh, is this useful or not? Right? Is this a step forward or is this just another Another acronym.
0: I find it useful because I think it's a nicely documented way of other considerations to have when looking at the performance of a team. Whether this is the right way to measure or not, I think is very difficult. I mean, as as you mentioned, if you're managing a small team working alongside them, you can understand exactly how well they're performing because you it's a small team we're working together. When I was doing that, uh um, yeah, I knew when people were performing well and were not because I was right next to them, I was doing code reviews, you know, fully on top of everything that's happening. When you are an engineering manager managing one, two, or maybe three teams, you can't get to that type of level. So therefore how are you supposed to measure performance across a team considering you are more separated? But then you have the team leads do it, right? I mean Can we not just use a a, a sort of an org chart to do it? The issue is not everyone trusts the team leads. That's the problem. There's a trust level um, during these cases, because that's another thing I say to my clients, say, look, if you've got your team lead in in the project, then they're the person that's able to best identify performance with um, any of the people inside the team. But if the people above them don't trust the team lead, maybe they're new to the role or come from another business, or they haven't been performing themselves recently, then anything they say is taken with a grain of salt and not uh, taken as seriously. So therefore, real numbers matter. So I sort of agree the Space Framework doesn't really give you the clarity of real numbers. But I think it helps with the argument and understanding of the different characteristics that impact an engineering team's productivity. And I think that's worth considering. I mean, as we both know, we don't want to measure too many things inside a team and anything you measure is likely to be gamified because that's the way engineers are. If they know you're measuring it, they'll gamify it. If say, OK, look, I'm going to measure I'm going to measure the number of lines of code committed, guys, but don't worry, I'm not considering it as part of your performance. People still making sure they'll have additional lines of code just in case I change my mind on that decision in future and the performance reviews come around. So it's important to only measure what actually matters and try and keep it small and then you work against that and if you identify something inside the department that's not working you then start to measure against that and you use that as your metric of improvement but it's um it's an organic mechanism you know we're not just building tires inside a factory where you build the same thing again and again you could try and improve the number of tires that you release this is almost like creative work but you know we don't want to consider it artistic work because you know things shouldn't be perfect things shouldn't be spotless we're not looking at masterpieces here we're looking at a working product but something that's stable that can be maintained as we move forward
1: okay so your your point is well taken that uh yes this should be largely a management piece and the team leads or whoever should be doing it but sometimes they're not up to the task. I agree. Sometimes we can't trust the team leads because they're they're too junior or whatever reason. So with that perspective, I guess this is a pretty good framework not because it gives us metrics and we can make a spreadsheet and automatically judge our developers performance, but because it specifically does not do that and focuses on more kind of soft skill softer things, satisfaction, communication, and of course it has performance and things like that. But this could be an ideal framework to give to a tech lead or a manager of a small team to try to help them to do a good job determining developer performance. So I do like the direction it's going. We are getting further away from the lines of code and everybody wants to see a, a line graph of developer productivity. And more into a little bit more of a sensible, like human, nuanced thing. So, I guess it's good. I think it's good for the very good for the managers who don't really know how to measure it. This is going to help them. Is it possible that uh, there will be an AI solution that can that can handle this, or is that just outrageous?
0: The AI solution would be replace your engineers with uh, my AI, AI, Rob, Susan, and Bob. And uh, you won't have any issues with uh, satisfaction and well-being. We'll always be very happy. We'll always. have no communication issues because we'll talk to ourselves. And some along those lines. So, you know, maybe maybe it we'll would be able to. I don't know how they can collect the data to be able to confidently say this is the right way to manage a team. Because as you say, it's hard for us to collect the data on this as humans. It'll oh, be harder for them to.
1: I disagree. My experience with AI these days is that it's extremely confident Regardless of what data it has, it will give you a report with 150% confidence, even if it's just wildly incorrect. So, I mean, I think if we ask AI to to, uh, judge the productivity of our developers, it will be more than happy to do that. It'll come in with complete confidence. I don't think it's going to work, though. I think this is, um, you know, when you scratch the surface of AI, especially these um, LLMs, they are pretty dumb right? I mean, they're very, very good at language, but could they handle looking at a a developer in terms of satisfaction, performance, activity, communication? I think you're going to get some wild hallucinations there.
0: (laughs) Not good. If you're fully remote, you know, communication, every time there's a Slack message or video, online video call or something like that, you can measure the length of time. You can even analyze the text that's used. But yeah, I mean, look, I think a framework for like this is a supporting factor. You identify teams that do have what is considered low performance, then you could look at this to understand why. And I think that's the most important thing here. How do you know you've got a high performing team? It's not a case of it's easy to always judge that. But if you have made the decision that you don't believe the team is highly performing and there isn't good developer productivity, this is a good framework to look into the cause to solve that problem because at least it tries to cover many more aspects rather than how fast can the engineer type to be able to get out more lines or characters of code.
1: I agree. So if we look at it that way, this is a very good step forward. We're getting away from all the metrics and lines of code. And now there are tools for people who are managing, mentoring, collaborating to try to be the best managers they can be and do a good job looking at productivity in a holistic way. So it's good stuff but I still think they might've added a few things to make the acronym work. <laughs> you feel it's a bit forced? Yeah, I, everybody likes a good acronym, but you know, what are you gonna do?
0: So- Cool, I'll tell you what, if I get some free time, I'm gonna try and think of my own acronym and then try and twist a team performance uh, mindset around that so it works as well. All right, break out the, the uh, thesaurus for that one. The Glynn framework, that makes it quite difficult. What am I gonna do for why? It's too short. It's too short. Well, it's, it's, it's short and to the point, Dave. Uh, it has to be the uh
1: you know the the Glyn productivity and quality framework.
0: <laughs> the seventy-two metric. Okay, there's a domain I need to buy and a book I need to write. Wonderful. Okay, then so moving on to the next story then. Inside uh, tech news, you pretty much can't get away from Reddit. So I suppose we better just talk about it, maybe in a light sense, but I thought it's an interesting issues that's happening at the moment where Reddit Stipe saying, right, all our APIs are now chargeable. There's been issues with the Apollo app saying it's gonna cost me 20 million a year to run. I can't afford that, so I'm gonna close down. There's been a load of protests inside the site with moderators uh, causing blackouts, so you can't access content. It was amazing how much that actually affected me. I was doing some searches and like, you know, not even looking at URL, just clicking on the first result and it's a Reddit result. It says oh, we're in blackout. It's like, oh for f- crying out loud. You know, you have to then start going for the cache versions and stuff. So It's an interesting concept, the fact that the perception of Twitter and the perception of Reddit is the fact that, it's yours. You're the one, the people are the ones that created the content. They're the ones that sharing this information and people collaborating together. And now suddenly the CEO suddenly seen by everybody and starting to make decisions that's now starting to impact you. You now realize it's not your, you know, you are the product. The content you've created is not yours. It's now Reddit. They can utilize how they want and monetize how they want because I believe they're trying to approach for an IPO. Do you have any initial feelings around this? Because I think for anyone that is working in like the social space or something like that, they need to, it's an interesting consideration to see what other companies are doing here because they're very much going down the lines of the Twitter and Elon Musk approach.
1: Yeah, I love Reddit. I've been following this and I've also been distressed doing some searches and finding that Reddit was sort of closed for business. But we've talked about so many large companies that are uh, doing wild things in Twitter and Meta. And it's fairly easy to understand what we're doing. At least we can sort of theorize. Here, this is very confusing. This is not a good look for a company that wants to go IPO. Everybody knows that the power of Reddit is, of course, in the content that's user-generated. It is user-moderated, which is an important thing. If they piss off the moderators, it could really screw up their product and devalue the whole company. So it just seems odd that they would do this kind of Musk-style Clumsy, aggressive CEO talk, and get into this ugly mess uh, with the users. And the moderators work for free as well, so they're not even paid employees for for free. Yes, yeah. Then again, we also know that Reddit is famous for uh, drama, right? Game Spot, meme, crypto coins, all kinds of shenanigans, and John Oliver's faces all over the place. And you know, Reddit is like this is kind of where uh, goofy stuff happens. So. That is kind of the culture there. Why would the CEO be acting this way? I I can't figure it out, honestly. It's easy to understand why they want to collapse the API. I don't think that they're just trying to monetize the API. It seems to me they're trying to collapse this market around Reddit using other tools and things like that, because the prices are so high that it seems punitive. And that makes sense to me. We've seen over the years that a lot of these API-driven tools and clients aren't that useful. They don't drive revenue. So, okay, if they want to go uh, and clean up, make sure they own their content, keep it close, keep people from training their LMs on it and all of that. I get that part, but why they would do it in this kind of abusive Elon Musk style way, I don't really get it. And for that matter, why does their native app suck so much? Everybody hates it. So I don't really know. what 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 is this? Is it just a clumsy execution of wanting to shut down their API ecosystem? Or
0: is something else happening? Why? I think it's a bit short-sighted. Essentially, closing down for the AI purpose, I think, is a very legitimate reason to start being more strict on usage of the API. A lot of value has come from the Reddit website. A lot of people, whenever they search for anything, they put in the Reddit the site yeah. Reddit, and then the search term to actually only search Reddit, because the results are much better for them. I don't really do that. Maybe I should. Let's see what happens out of all this. I do it. You do that as well, do you? Yeah. I'm just not interested in other people's opinions. I don't buy that much stuff, to be honest, Dave. That's why I don't need to find out what Reddit's opinion on the best barbecue set is.
1: Well, I go to Reddit so that I can tell everyone my opinion. That's, that's the
0: one they need to hear okay fair enough so yeah so trying to limit the ai standpoint i completely understand as you say their native app is poor and you know the fact that someone has already created a better app that people prefer using it shows that there's a big issue inside your own engineering department on how they actually deliver technology i think they're cutting off their nose to spite their face because they're coming down too heavily People are going to realize that, OK, if this isn't the place where my data is going to remain, maybe I should move to Discord or some other services. There are other solutions now, not as well indexed if you start going to like the, these other types of Mastodon uh, or like uh, Slack type chat sites. But maybe this is where it should be. So, yeah. And, you know, charging too much. If your pricing point is wrong, which I'd assume it clearly is, if they're trying to charge Apollo 20 million Dollars or whatever it was a year, then it shows that your business model has a big issue here. I know that you know they could start charging more, pass the cost onto the customer, or start having more advertising, but that's a big jump. And if you're not doing a soft rollout, it's. I, I think again, it's just like Elon Musk seems to pave the way for brash decision making like sacking 50 percent of your staff oh i can do that i need to do that as a business i can sort of understand the concept but then suddenly it becomes okay so other companies start doing the same thing too yeah again with the way that they deal with the api oh elon musk can do it he's a smart guy i we should be able to do it as well so i don't know i think there's there's a lot of valuable data inside reddit and if the community doesn't want to stay with them their ipo is going to be terrible and if you don't, if you're not trying to take care of your community, especially your moderators, which are helping keep the community and the content strong, yeah. then you're only going to be going downwards from a valuation standpoint, in my opinion.
1: Without the community, it's the it's nothing, really. But this thing about how they're trying to avoid the uh, AI training and all of that, and that's somehow part of the API price change, it doesn't really make sense to me. I don't really buy it because, first of all. If you want people to stop training their LLMs on Reddit, which I believe has happened many times, and that is stealing their, you know, their valuable content, you don't just wildly raise the price. That doesn't really make any sense. You, um, yeah, you put new policies, you change your terms of service, you legal up, you put rate limits. There's just, I'm sure, there's like bots and things you could do in order to reduce that. And if they wanted to monetize it to try to make the books better. They would raise it, but why would they raise it so much that they're immediately killing off half of their uh, API ecosystem or more, including some of their larger users at at Apollo, which they don't even want to buy? I have to believe that they're trying to kill it. I think that's the idea. I think they want to um, basically get rid of the IPO or the uh, API community who are essentially taking the content and not running ads. That's basically what it is. Their choice is to either increase the price of the uh, API to compensate for that, which is sort of uh, undoable because now all those companies go out of business and won't really be able to make any profit in any way, or they just get rid of it, right? I mean, what are they going to do? I think that's what's going on. I think they're trying to protect their content, but it's so clumsy. You know, there is one thing about it, which is um, this hard talk. Right? Brash decisions and kind of rough justice. Elon Musk saying, screw it. I don't need all these people maintaining the servers. And even if it, uh, Twitter goes down or is, is unstable for a little while, it'll be okay. And everybody's shocked. We can't believe it. He's going to ruin everything. And then, sure enough, Twitter goes down a little bit and everybody stays. Right? It has worked. And the rough layoffs, it's not a very nice environment right now for workers and workplace, but they are efficient. So I just wonder if um, Reddit is just saying, you know what, we're just going to pull off the Band-Aid and let's go ahead and just anger everybody right now because that's where we're going. Raise the price, collapse the apps, we'll bring Apollo to his knees and then buy them. Everybody will leave and then come back and all the moderators will threaten to leave and not do it. Kind of like airlines, you know, every time somebody's bag is late, they make like a TikTok saying, I will never fly United Airlines again. Right, I will never fly Air Canada, this and that, but they always do. And the airlines know that. Their market research says that's that's what we don't listen to. People
0: get angry and they rant. Well, airlines is a bit different. You don't have a choice. You're limited on the flight providers from your location to where you want to go. So therefore, I'd say that's a little bit different. But yeah, essentially, when it comes to technology, say there's still an awful lot of people on Twitter. The number of times I've had people message on Facebook saying, that's it, I'm leaving Facebook. I'm never coming back over the last 10, 15 years. They're still there. They're still hanging around. You know, they're not doing much, but they're still connected.
1: Where are you going to go from Twitter? Another one could pop up, yes. But today, yeah, if you're moderating a sub, there's a lot of people and you're having a good time, where are you going to go to start again? Discord's not quite the same. I'm not saying there's nothing else, but it is true that... uh, I think people will come back. It's already happening. I think people will get bored of the protest and then they'll go back and then everything will be fine. But it's weird that Twitter has been so rough about it. It just seemed unnecessary and ungraceful.
0: Do you think they've overplayed their hand? It sounds like they've overplayed that. It feels like they're overplaying their hand. But as you say, you know, Twitter did this thing about what 15 years ago with their apis originally you know we used to have tweet deck and all these other things they pulled all the apis back as well and twitter carried on growing maybe it's we need to stop being so sensitive understand this isn't our business they get to do what they want it's their playground and so they either go too harsh with it and people go to a different playground or everyone realizes okay i can still live with this so they end up coming back So yeah, it's possible. I just thought it'd be an interesting thing just to highlight for anybody that does work in a space where there is a social community around them and especially the content or the value of the business is based around the community. It's interesting to watch these things. And if Reddit's gone, then it shows they went too far and people need to be a bit more cautious about how they treat their community and their contributions to your business's success.
1: Definitely. It's going
0: to be interesting to see what happens. With Reddit, right, and then moving on to what caught our attention this week. I know I've got two things, but uh, you go ahead first, Dave. Sure. Okay, I'll go quick. Did you
1: see the article by an author named Corey Doctorow
0: entitled "The Enshittification of TikTok"? That name sounds familiar to me. I'm not sure why. Maybe he's like a regular one of the podcasts I listen to, or something.
1: He's been around for at least for a couple of years. I just love the word "enshittification." because it's hilarious, but it also does kind of show how everything just slowly becomes shittier lately. He has this premise, um, the inshittification of platforms, and mostly social media is the example, and it's very simple, and it reads like this. Here's the inshittification cycle, according to this author. First, they are good to their users. Then they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers, Finally, they abuse those business customers to claw back all the value for themselves. And uh, this pattern really seems to be applicable to many businesses, even with Reddit, right? They were very, very good to the users. Uh, Freemium model. This is sort of the the model we see. And everybody was moderating their subs. Everything was great. They love Reddit. And then the advertisers came in, right? All these sort of larger things happening. And the API, now they're abusing the users Right, trying to pull now, trying to get that value out and tighten up their ad stream, stop leaking content, and then pretty soon they're just going to start abusing everybody, trying to claw it back. You look at Google Search; it used to be so good, it was amazing, and now it's really a piece of shit. You, you search something on Google, and how many of the top results are ads or just something that you don't want? It just seems such a mess in there. They attracted the users, everything was great, and then everything was great for the advertisers. Now it sucks for both. They have a monopoly on both, and they're bleeding everybody dry. Amazon, very similar. TikTok, for sure. This um, inshittification cycle, I think, is very, very interesting. In some ways, it's very simple, but in another way, it's like, yeah, here we go. We bring in the users. We call it the freemium model. Bring in the users. Once we have critical mass, now we can attract the business users and once we have critical mass there, we have some type of a monopoly on something. And then we just bleed everybody dry and, and shitify the platform. And then we hope that everyone is stuck. And if they're not stuck, we're sunk. But if the next best thing is Mastodon, then everything is okay. And that is the enchidification process. I like saying
0: enchidification. I encourage you to say enchidification. Give it a try right now. Enchidification. How did that feel? I have heard of this before, actually. Uh, I've I've heard it discussed somewhere. And yeah, absolutely. This uh, flow for businesses does seem very real. Like you say, you know, Amazon is all about, um, you know, low costs to you know they were selling things at cost or below cost to be able to take over the market you have the prime and now that they've got the market they you know increase prices they've got bad practices about trying to force people to utilize prime i think there's a court case going on at the moment around this or at least some judgment stuff so yeah there's It's about trying to pull out shareholder value. And that's the thing. You start a business, it's all about the users. You become public or, you know, heavily VC funded. And then it's like, right, now we need to become much more monetized. You become more monetized. And then it's like, right, we still need to keep on increasing revenue for the business, increasing profits. And it's the natural end game for the business to be done for because you can't keep on growing. You have to at some point you can have to downgrade the experience for, some, for one of the parties in those circumstances, and normally it's the users because they are the product. If you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And that's exactly what happens with you know Amazon. You're not paying for Amazon, you're paying for the service, for the products that you're purchasing only in Prime World. If Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, again, you are the product.
1: Yeah, and this cycle seems to be really pertinent to online businesses. Because if you open a restaurant or a shoe store, You're trying to satisfy your audience, you know, keep your market, compete and have good products and satisfaction. But that is not really what the inshittification cycle is. It's not about that. So it's a cautionary tale. It makes it hard to understand how Reddit would go public. Who's going to lead that? It's not working out for Twitter. It's not really working out for anybody right now. Um, Now that the inshittification cycle is so kind of transparent and blatant, what does that mean? What's the long-term view for a company like Reddit that's going to go public, are they going to be able to hold that moat around them? Because if they don't, they're screwed. And I mean, they'll implode. It'll be over. Like in six months, their revenue could just take a, a big shit. So I think in is something that affects us all. And we should all talk about
0: it uh, and use that word
1: frequently, in
0: Say it twice a day. And from uh, my side, essentially, the first thing I just want to raise is something we discussed in the last podcast about the Google domains with them adding the new um, the new domain structures of like .zip and .movs. They've now axed it and they've sold it to Squarespace. So, you know, essentially, you were asking the question, why would they do this, Dave? I think your answer is now clear. They obviously needed to show they had more growth opportunities. They added a couple more top-level domains so they could up the price for Squarespace. But why would they do that? <laughs> what, the, what the hell happened? That was their strategy
1: was to to punch it up, to make it more interesting for their big juicy
0: sale to Squarespace. I don't understand any of this. What was the point of all this? It's the only reason I can think of, Dave, as in aha moments of they obviously, why would they do it if they're planning to sell it anyway? It must be just purely to force some agreement. You know, maybe one of the interns wrote the contract and wrote the numbers down wrong of how many top level domain names they're in control of. So therefore, they had to quickly add five or six more.
1: Okay. Do you remember the scene at the end of uh, Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they took the Ark and they put it in that giant warehouse of secured artifacts at the very end. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: It's been years since I've seen it. I I, I remember the ball being chasing him. There was a huge warehouse where sort of
1: world relics and and important things that just couldn't be handled by society were just put there to stay forever under lock and key. And I feel like Google just has a big warehouse somewhere where all of their misadventures and abandoned projects are piling up in Stadia, Stadia, is there, and and Google Glass is there, and all of the others, all the permutations of chat and meet, duo, right? And um, so, I don't know. Google's just sort of famous for this now. They go on many adventures. This one, I can't imagine that the whole point of this was to sell it to Squarespace. I doubt that this was a financial winner for them. Maybe they put in the dot move and dot zip and then realized, oh, shit, we don't want to be involved in this, and sold it off. But I'm going to chalk it up to Google shenanigans, Google doing spitballing and doing weird things because they have enough money to do whatever they want. And it's just an adventure. I don't know what happened, but um, good riddance. I hope Squarespace enjoys it.
0: And each one of these um, like platforms they shut down, I'd be more than happy to run as a business because they would be profitable. The difference is it's not profitable enough for Google to put any form of energy towards it. Okay, cool. And my last one is, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but uh, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg have agreed to a cage fight with each other. Now, that is what I want to see. Two rich billionaires fighting out in the ring. I'm all up for this. I, I, Zuckerberg's going to kill him. Zuckerberg's going to win so easily. It, but I'll be looking forward to this.
1: Did they agree like in this Twitter exchange? Or is this actually an agreement? I thought it seemed like just Twitter fooling around.
0: I'm falling into the hype, Dave. I don't think it's actually going to happen, but I would love it if it did. So, yeah, it is a Twitter exchange. But, yeah, I I think it'd be great. Zuckerberg does already train in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yes. And he's actually, you know... He takes it seriously. He does actually compete. So therefore, you know, that's not an easy thing to do and to keep yourself in shape for something like that. It takes a lot of years to get good at that type of grappling. Uh, I mean, I spent some time myself in a cage fighting camp in Thailand uh, and done, uh, you know, different types of training in Liverpool and London over my time. Not for over 10 years now, though. So I wouldn't want to do it now. But it's great to see Zuckerberg's a year younger than me. Elon Musk is older than me. Bring it on. You know, I'm waiting to see the Seth Rogen analysis of this.
1: I'm ready to go. We need to, and uh, we'll have uh, Snoop Dogg and Kevin Hart doing commentary, maybe Joe Rogan. It'll be fantastic. I am not a Zuckerberg fan, and I'm not much of an Elon Musk fan, but in this case, I would love to watch uh, Zuckerberg tear him a new one. I can't wait to see it. I mean, Zuckerberg, say what you will about his business dealings and his just weirdness, but from what I learned, He's been training in jiu-jitsu for four and a half years and training hard. And recently he started doing competitions at sort of a medium level. He didn't try to jump into the big leagues. But his performance was very promising, according to some fairly knowledgeable people that said, you know, he, he's actually moving along and has promise. And it's not impossible that he could be, you know, a player. So, and he is younger and in much better shape
0: who wouldn't want to see... Elon, you know, he, he sleeps in the factory sometimes. You know, he, he's managing, what, four, five, even more businesses than that. There's no chance he's going to have the time to dedicate to training. You know, he doesn't even dedicate time to sleeping enough. So no, I don't see him There's getting no in shape to be able to offer a decent competitive aspect to the fight. It'll just be a destruction from Zuckerberg. I know I'm all up for paying money to watch this, Dave. I wouldn't normally pay money, but right here, I'm saving up right now for whatever this ticket costs.
1: How much Dogecoin will it cost me to watch this? If I can see Elon Musk just get clocked in the face and stagger around and then fall down, I'll be so happy. It'll be fantastic. And I really wouldn't mind watching Zuckerberg be torn apart too, but... I don't know, I mean, uh, he, he has sort of earned the right to be in the cage, he's been training. Let him have a go. Musk even accepting it on Twitter, it's the same thing about how he's so loose with his words. I think that's the reason he owns Twitter. It's because he was just fooling around saying stuff, and then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, he's stuck in this deal. Now he owns Twitter.
0: You're contractually committed now.
1: <laughs> yes, so if he bails out even now, if he makes a joke, but it's just not going to happen, I think he's going to
0: be criticised even for that. But do you think it's possible that they might actually get into the cage? No, I don't think so. I'd love it if it did. It'll be be really entertaining. I mean, look, there's both aspects. You know, you can can respect how successful they've been throughout their career. As a techie myself who's done some forms of martial arts, not at a serious level, I think it's a good thing to promote for people in our industry to stay fit, to stay healthy. Um, And yeah, essentially... You know, Elon Musk is always going to come out with some good trash talk. I'm not sure what Zuckerberg could do. He's going to look like, uh, you know, a little nerdy kid like he always does. But I think he would win because he'll just go straight into a grappling mode and probably uh, put him in an armbar or a choke within the first 30 seconds. Immediate. So I don't think it'll even be that great a fight. But I think the hype around it and just what the world's turned to, you know, we've got all these YouTube celebrities that are doing the big fight competitions in boxing and UFC yeah let's bring the techies into this space why not i'm well up for it take them down a notch i can't wait i want it to happen
1: i'll fly to vegas to witness it how about that (laughs) i'll just pay for the pay-per-view come on to vegas you're you're due for a vegas trip
0: i'll set up the whole thing we'll have a great time cool great so uh yeah we've gone over time like we normally do but uh great talking to you again dave always a pleasure and thank you for the audience for listening. Do uh, keep subscribed to us and listen out for the next episode. And uh, yeah, please also check out techkitchen.io if you'd like to join our Slack room. Thanks for your time. And thanks again, Dave. Thanks, everybody.